0: On this Sunday, where we're seeking to honor and celebrate many volunteers in our church. I thought we'd take a look at Luke 9 and take a break from our study of 2 Timothy. Don't you find that life puts you in situations where you have got limitations? That there's far more expected out of you than you have the ability to provide? I find that that's a pretty regular experience for me in case you're like, no, I think I got it all figured out. I'm doing good here. Let me just call mind a few things, like maybe some of your relationships. If you are married, how you doing? Do you feel like you got everything you need to be just that awesome spouse all the time, right? And if you're married, if you look at your, like, whoa, more work needed, right? Um, what if you are a parent? How you doing there? You think like you just you got all the wisdom that you need. Every decision you made was just like, man, that's exactly what Jesus would have me do. Um, You're always right. You're able to face every challenge. You've got patience beyond Job, right? Or do you find like, man, I I need some help. And I'm oftentimes placed with all the drama that's going on in my family to my own limitations. How are you doing as a single? Single and... Glorifying God as I live, and yet there's times where I just I feel very lonely, and at times there's to honor God in my singleness. That's that's a challenge for me at this point. Or if you're a kid, I mean, think about it for the kids. How are you, how are you doing? You feel like you're able to just honor God with all of your decisions? You feel like you've got the strength that you need for all the choices that are before you to get done, not only your schoolwork, but honoring and respecting your parents. Trying to figure out what life is all about, especially in a confusing age where you just look at your phone to find out how popular you are every ten seconds. And I mean, do you have what you need for life? And then if you think you're doing all right in your relationships, just how about your responsibilities? Like your ministry to others. Let's say you're one of the many volunteers like in our church. Do you have what it's what's called for, whether you're working with our children or our students, college? you're involved in a Bible study, life group leader, you're working on the campus with our grounds. Do you have what you need to face the responsibilities that you face? And you know, as a Christian, much of what you do during the week is really supposed to be a ministry. Did you know that? Your job is one of the primary ways in which you serve the Lord. And your jobs require skills, uh, Consistency, creativity, you've got to have discernment, you've got to make good decisions, you've got to be able to deal with all these people problems, you've got to meet requirements, don't you find that your jobs put you in a situation where, man, I need resources beyond myself? How often God puts us in situations where we are at the end of ourselves, and he does that for a purpose. You see, God puts us in the difficult So that we can learn that he is the God who is able. That he is the God of possibilities. This is something that the Lord wants us to understand. He wants us to have a vision of him as he is. Profound. Far greater than you and I imagine. Oftentimes we put God in a box. Did you know that when you read through the gospels, the first four books of the New Testament that cover the the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus... There are only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. Does anybody know what they might be? Wow. Okay. Okay, yes, there was, there's the miracle of the resurrection. That's it. That's, it's in every four Gospels. So you remember Easter, and I heard it. Uh, there was the feeding of the 5,000, which tells me that we got folks that can read the notes. And you did, uh, did so ahead of time, right? Yes, the feeding of the 5,000... Is recorded in every single gospel account. It is there for a reason. God does not want us to miss the foundational principles that He teaches through this miracle because it is essential to the Christian life. How does God do His work through His people? How does God do his work through his people on this Sunday that we're trying to honor and celebrate volunteers and people who see themselves in ministry and are actually doing it, taking these steps of grace? We want to make sure that every single person knows how God does his work through his people. And that's why I've asked you to take a look at Luke chapter nine In Luke chapter nine. Let me just kind of bring you up to speed here. As you're going through the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter nine is like the fulcrum. It's where everything changes prior to this. Uh, Jesus is traveling. He's doing his public ministry. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's doing healing. He's casting out demons. And he's got his apostles, his 12 that he selected, and they are hanging out with him. Everywhere Jesus goes, they go. And it is pretty cool to be with Jesus. I mean, he's got all the right answers. Anytime he's put under attack, he's, he's got the wisdom to deal with it. He's got power. He can do miracles. They've seen things they never even imagined were possible happening with Jesus. And they're like, this is pretty cool to be with Jesus. But in Luke chapter 9, he changes everything. No longer are they just going to hang out with him. Now, Jesus is going to involve them in his work. And that's what you see. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, he gathers the twelve together. Maybe it was just kind of after breakfast and said, listen guys, it's been fun to hang out with you, and I know that, you know, it's been a pleasure, but I'm sending you out. And I'm going to give you power. And he actually says, I'm going to give you a power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Things that you are fully not capable of doing. I want to teach you what my power looks like through you. And so he, verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And so he sends them out. And you find that they've got some extra instructions. They're going out. You need to understand, if you look at verses 7 through 9. There's something that is very profound that takes place when Jesus sends out his 12. At this about the same time, Herod, the Tetrarch, just starts to go, continues to slip into insanity. He's throwing this wild party. And at this party, a request is made to behead John the Baptist. And so he does so. All of a sudden, the fire is being turned up. The people of Israel were recognizing that John is no common man. This is a prophet of God. And now he's been beheaded. And even though they didn't have texting and Twitter and TV and Instagram, they had the ability to communicate. There are three festivals uh, in which the Jewish people would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And one of those is Passover. And it's at this time that they're actually making their way. News is spread News is spread about this John the Baptist who's been beheaded. But news is also being spread about this Jesus. Some are calling the Messiah. In fact, he's even sending his own out. He's so powerful that he can do his work through his people. And it's at this point that we find that they, in verse 10, the apostles are returning. And what tales they have to tell. Look at it, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. I mean, this was astounding. And taking them with him, Jesus, or he, withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. So after their mission trip, I'm sure they're excited, but they're exhausted. Pressure was being heated up. They're confronting and they're seeing a lots of people who are starting to make their pilgrimage. And it's at this time, Jesus takes them away to a city called Bethsaida. For Philip, Andrew, and Simon Peter, this is their hometown. They know everything about this place. And Jesus decides to take a retreat there. Now, uh, so they make their way, and it's at this point. Look at this. Despite how weary and tired they might be, verse 11, but the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and about and curing those who... Who had need of healing. So, despite the fact that uh, I'm sure Jesus at this point is very tired, they're actually going to a retreat. The death of John the Baptist had a profound effect upon Jesus and the apostles. And yet, all the masses, many of which were probably unsettled by the beheading of John the Baptist, others making their way to Jerusalem, but now there is Jesus. They hear about him, and the crowds begin to follow him, and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of the king. Because the king is present, the kingdom of God was in their midst. And all those who show allegiance to the king are now a part of the kingdom. They are, they are his children. He's their Lord. They are his servants. And so Jesus is teaching and talking with all of these people and bringing about these miracles. And notice verse 12. Now the day was ending... And the twelve came and said to him, Jesus, you need to send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. So I have a feeling that the reason that the apostles knew the condition, the hunger condition of all of the people that were gathered, and there are literally thousands. Is because they were hungry, right? All right? We're starving, Jesus, and we aren't going to be able to eat until you send everybody away. And it's a desolate place, and man, there's just not a lot of places to go. You need to send them away. They need to find lodging. They need to go get some food because, you know, it's already tight, really late. We're really tired. You said we're going to go on a retreat. We weren't expecting that we'd have more ministry, and uh, it's time for you to send them away. I want you to know it's always a dangerous position to be where you're telling Jesus what to do. Okay? But I can tell you that you can get there when, you know, you're experiencing success. Obviously it was his power. They couldn't heal anybody, cast out any demons. They can't even preach well on their, on, on, on their own efforts. But God working through them and Jesus giving, commissioning and empowering, perhaps it started to go to their head like, whoa, man, we're kind of on par with Jesus now, and we're going to help him out. Obviously, he's not getting it. Folks are hungry, they're tired, they need a place to stay. We'll tell him what to do. That's never a good idea, and so Jesus is going to use this profound situation. They're kind of going in the wrong direction, and he's literally going to just shake them right out of their little sandals because look at this next verse. Do you see this? But he said to them, you give them something to eat. What? You, you give them something to eat. Now, these guys would have trouble feeding five people, okay? Uh, that, to feed 5,000, we're going to find out here, uh, that would be way beyond him. Jesus says, you feed them. And they're like, what? We can't do that. And they said to him, <laughs> wait, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps... We go and buy food for all these people. For there were, verse 14, about 5,000 men. So there are 5,000 men. This isn't counting the women and children, which means that it's very likely that there would have been 10, 15, some scholars think up to 20,000 people making their way on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, hearing about Jesus, unsettled about John the Baptist, following Jesus, listening to his every word, and here is this massive crowd of people. Everybody is hungry. No one's got food. And so he says, listen, I want you to have them. I I want you to feed them. Well, uh, they don't even know what to do. And so look at what Jesus says. Verse 14, he said to his disciples, I want you to have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. Think about that. Put yourself in the sandals of one of these apostles. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Now go put them in groups of 50. What, what, what's going on here? You see, what God is doing is he is going to teach his disciples that you obey me even if you don't understand how it all is going to work out. You do what I say even if it doesn't make sense to you. That's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. And Jesus said, I want you to go and I want you to put them into groups about 50 each. If you want to know where small group ministry gets its start, right there, verse 14, right? He puts them into groups of about 50. He tells them to do that. And so look at this. They actually obey. They did so, and they had them all sit down. Can you imagine what this would look like? Okay? They're like, Jesus, you want us to put them in groups of 50 you, we're going to feed them, but we don't have any food. Just remind you of that. OK, so they go out and like everybody's looking. I'm like, we need you to get in groups of 50. Can you imagine the questions? Like what? Hey, hey, what? What are we doing this for? Uh, I think we're, we're going to eat, but we're uh, we just need to get in groups of 50. Did you bring some food for us? Uh, well, no, we're not used to thinking that far ahead. No, we, we didn't. We didn't actually know all of you were going to be here. Did you see Jesus with any food? Uh, You know, I don't believe we did, but just just, just get in groups, you know? And so they're getting everybody in groups. Everybody's looking at them. These guys, the apostles, it's like, oh my, what are you doing? You know how you don't want to feel awkward, right? Especially you see this with younger people. Like, the worst thing is to be feeling awkward, right? And having people look at you and asking questions, and that's where these guys find themselves. So they're getting them into these groups. They're learning to take God at his word. That's what faith is. Friends, this is so profoundly important in walking with Jesus. You see, we often, we kind of, we have a conditional relationship with Jesus, so we think. And this is what it looks like. I'll obey if it makes sense to me. I'll do what you say as long as it seems logical and and I kind of want to do that. Friends, that's not how it works. Faith is taking God at his word. Um, with our kids, we had this little phrase that we tried to instill in them. And it, and it just simply goes like this. When do we obey? Right away. Right? And this usually came up when they weren't obeying, right? So, when do we obey? Right away. And the, what we were trying to do is, like, we, we believed that, like, well, if we could get our kids to actually follow through with what we were saying... They could respect the parental authority that God has placed over them that uh, chances are if they could learn how to do it in the home while at school and with coaches, uh, they would respond correctly. When do we obey? Right away. But more importantly, that with God, the authority, when he said it, they would do it. Now, obviously not 100% here, and we're still working on it, but that's the idea. That's what Jesus is teaching his people. I say something, even if it doesn't make sense to you, you do it. You obey. Retrain. And so they did it. It was difficult. I'm sure they had a lot of crazy looks. It seemed unusual. But they were learning to trust Jesus and to take him at his word. And then look at this. Look at verse 16. They obeyed. How powerful that is. And then Jesus, he took the five loaves and the two fish. Now, the disciples themselves didn't have any food. We know that from John, chapter 6, where this miracle is recorded, that somehow the apostles had found a little boy who had a smart mama who sent the boy uh, with a lunch. You might get hungry along the way. So she sent him with, uh, you know, five barley loaves, okay, like little biscuits, and two fish, Okay. Now, don't get the idea that this boy had, like, some tuna strapped to his back, you know, and he's just kind of walking like that. It, these were small little fish. They were either smoked or pickled. It was it was enough for, like, one person for lunch. And somehow, we don't know how the apostles got it. Uh, the apostles could be a little rough at times. Uh, we hope they were cordial and they got this in the proper ways. But we don't know. I mean, there was a time that's recorded where they were putting the run on children and scaring them. So, we don't know exactly how he got it. Maybe the boys saw the situation like, you guys are helpless and hopeless. Here's my lunch, okay? But they, Jesus took what they had, and they, they, he now holds this up, and I want you to see this. They only have five loaves and two fish. It is completely inadequate for the task. There's something profound about how little there is, yet the need is great. Jesus seems to take special note of those who have little and offer it all. Here's one example. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 21, maybe uh, it's been overlooked way too often, there is a a widow. And uh, it's at the time where people are going to the temple and they're giving their offerings. They're presenting their financial offerings to the Lord. It's an expression of worship, and people are in, and some of these folks are making a great show. You know, like they converted all of their resources into like change that is going to make a lot of jingle when it gets presented, right? So you get a lot of attention when you're at the temple making your offering. But there is this widow, and like all she has is two small coins to live on, and she goes very quietly, and she places it in the offering. And Jesus at the temple then, like, called the time out and says, Listen to this. You see that poor widow putting those two small copper coins there? He said this. He said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. And listen to what he said. For they all, out of their surplus, put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Jesus takes note. Of what we would consider little and insignificant. Friends, what we need to learn to do is just whatever you've got. You just give it to the Lord. Whether you think you have much or little, it's like, Lord, it's yours. And so, that's all they have. Five loaves, two fish. Verse 16, and looking up to heaven, Jesus blessed them. And this has the idea of just giving thanks to God. This would be customary among the Jews to pray and to thank God for whatever meal they were going to have. We see that even today. Christians thanking God for the food that they have. He blessed them. And look at this. He broke them and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. This was literally creation power. Five loaves are multiplied. Hundreds fold. All of a sudden there's more and more fish. And he keeps setting this out Before the apostles, they're they're standing there, they're grabbing, like, empty baskets, and they're, like, putting food in there. And they keep, this is creation power. Can you imagine? Put yourself in the apostles' shoes right there. You're standing there in your sandals, and you're seeing this happen. For anybody that saw this, why this would remind them of these miracles of God's provision. Remember, like, when they were on the Exodus, and they were making their way to the promised land, the people of Israel, and God provided manna from heaven. Or remember, like, Elijah who was uh, had the situation where he multiplied oil and flour for that widow at Zarephath. Or remember Elisha, who actually had multiplied those 20 loaves, where God continued to provide. Now they're seeing the creative, miraculous power. They're seeing Jesus for who he is. He is God supreme. He can literally bring about a multiplication of food. And they're seeing it. And so what they do is they take this food and they start presenting it to the groups of 50, you know? And can you imagine, they're like, whoa, where did all this food come from? Well, well, Jesus gave it to us, and so they're giving the bread and the fish, and they're they're having everything they could. And then, of course, you know what happens is that you run out, right? What do you do when your hands are empty? Where do you go when your heart has been depleted? There's There's no more to give. You gave everything you got. You go back to Jesus. Please don't miss. When they discovered, whoa, uh, I don't have anything more to live. And he had all these hungry eyes. Like, where are my fish, right? Where's my Taco Bell meal? I mean, where is it? And they're like, just a second. And they went back to Jesus. And do you see that? He kept giving. It's in the imperfect tense, meaning he did it over and over and over again. He just kept keeps giving this food to the disciples. And they set it before the people. You want to know this. That when you're giving frequently, you will be empty regularly. When you're giving frequently as a parent, as a spouse, when you're giving frequently in a ministry, you're going to be on a regular basis, you're going to be empty. Don't get thrown off by that. That is meant to tell you it's time to go back to Jesus. He's going to give you all that you need to accomplish all that he's asked. And that's what they're learning. You see, the Christian ministry is about learning how to live in God's power and not our own. Remember, like Zechariah 4, 6, it says, It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I'm going to do my work through you. You trust me. And when you're empty, you keep coming back to me because I will provide at the right hand, right time. So when your hands and your heart are empty, what we need to do is we keep coming back to him. When you feel drained and depleted, and you will on a regular basis, You keep just going back to Jesus. Uh, I remember hearing from Shuckswind Dahl, and he spoke of this situation where he went and visited these missionary friends of his in Japan. Now, if you don't know this, Japan is like the missionary graveyard, okay? There are just people that go with high hopes to share the gospel and the love of Jesus, and Japan just kind of wrecks them and just kind of relegates people to the sideline. Um, when I was years ago, I spoke at the Nagano Bible Conference and spent a week there teaching the scriptures. It was wonderful. And it's interesting that I met all these um, American missionaries and they really weren't doing missionary work anymore. They were English teachers now. And they talk about how hard and how difficult it was to try to minister here. Well, when Swindoll goes, he shows up, he goes to this, this missionary couple's home. The guy's gone. The wife said, it is bad. Man, what we're going through is rough. You need to understand something. You, missionaries, pastors, they go through some incredible difficulty. It's like the idea of like, just like, I'm wiped out and I'm ready to call, throw in a towel. That happens pretty regularly. It is rough and it is tough. So Swindoll, hearing this, and she goes, yeah, he's, he's down in his office. That's where you're going to be able to find him. So Swindoll goes down there thinking, He's going to hear, like, that's it, we're done, okay? This guy is ready to say, I, you know, I, I'm, there's something else I've got to do because this isn't working. But when he gets to this guy's office, he looks in the window, and far from seeing this guy in, like, total despair and writing his letter of resignation, he uh, he sees this guy, he's got his Bible open, and he's got this hymnal open, and he's he's reading psalms, and he's singing hymns. And he just stood and just watched him. And he learned a profound lesson about being in Christian ministry. You see, when you're depleted and yet you're into yourself, you just go back to Jesus. When your hands and heart are empty, you go back to Him. You know, and I want to address something. I would imagine that many of you have experienced where, okay, I've gotten this principle. You know, I've I've actually encountered this before. And so I do go back to Jesus that sometimes He doesn't provide the way that I think He should. How do you respond to that? Let me just uh, throw out some possibilities. When it's not happening like you think it should, let me throw out some possibilities of what might be going on. Something that might be going on is that God is glorified and that you and I learn how to wait. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that God is not in a hurry. We are, man, as Americans, we have, if, it, if I can't fix this in 10 seconds, 10 seconds, something is wrong. But God is not in a hurry. You see, God is sovereign and he's working out his plan. And it might be that you need to learn how to wait and rest on him because there are events and situations and things that are happening. There's far more going on behind the scenes, what you do not see, than what is visible and in front of you and what your mind can comprehend. And so sometimes God wants us to learn how to wait. It's kind of like this. Sometimes when you learn how to wait, when the blessing does come, it is oh so sweet. And sometimes God is glorified that we learn something. Meaning, if it's not working out quite the way you want, don't like, oh, God's abandoned me. No, God is probably trying to teach you something. He's trying to address an issue in your heart. Maybe uh, you've become rather distant or mechanical in just how you approach God. And so what he does is he kind of has like a divine pause in which he addresses a heart issue in your life. You see this um, in a situation where Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about like the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had. He says, you know, for to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me this a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me and to keep me from exalting myself. Now, oftentimes people read that that thorn in the flesh and they go, oh, you know, Must be like bad eyes. He couldn't see, or there was a problem, health problem. Maybe his leg wasn't working. But I want to challenge that. If you look at it in context, he's talking about people that were looking to destroy his ministry. The word messenger, messenger of Satan, Greek word, angelos, it appears 188 times in the New Testament. It is always translated a messenger, either human or like divine, like an angelic messenger. So context and the word itself leads you to believe that this was probably some people that were tearing him up in his ministry, slandering him, ripping him apart. And so he said this, I learned in a lesson. He says, I poured I the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, don't miss these words. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Power is perfected in weakness. My power in your life. And so he says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, that is when God's power is put on full display. Because obviously, I don't have what I need apart from him. That's why his grace is sufficient. And sometimes God is planning to do something very different than what you might be praying for. Like, God, the solution seems apparent to me. This is what you need to do. God says, hold on. I've got something much different and much better in store. But what this miracle is meant to teach us is that God is able to give all that I need to accomplish all that he's asked. It's really a principle that you find throughout Scripture. You remember in Daniel chapter 3, There were these three guys, their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Azariah. Remember them? You might know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had this awesome idea. This was such a good idea. He he created this golden image of himself, and he's like, Since I am the world ruler, how cool would it be if we gather everybody together? I'll bring the best bands in town, and at my signal, everyone will bow down to this image of me. Doesn't that sound awesome? This is great, the epitome of self centeredness. It'll be a wonderful day for me. Please, everybody do this. So he sets it all up. And of course, everybody bows down, but three guys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego you can change our name, but you can't change our heart. We're not going to bow down because we actually know the one true God, and you are not it. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's like, maybe you misunderstood me. Let me make myself perfectly clear. They blow the trumpet, you bow down. And if you're, that doesn't bring clarity to your thinking, you see that furnace over there? where are stoked stoke that up so hot, it'll singe the people that even get near it, and you're going in it. And this is what they said. You know, they were very polite, and they were gracious, and they said, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King, but even if he does not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is able to rescue us from the furnace. I know that seems impossible, but he can, because he's God. And even if he doesn't, one way or the other, we're getting rescued. You see, it's the understanding that God is able to give all that I need to accomplish all that he has asked Remember like the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. God wants us to see that He is the God who can do the impossible. He wants us to have a grand vision. And He'll do what He wants, when He wants, but let's place no limits and put God in no box. And that's what these guys are learning. Whoa! This Jesus, not only Savior, Lord, He is the God of the universe. God is able to give all that I need to accomplish all that he's asked. And can I ask you, what has God asked you to do? Where are you at? What has he specifically asked you to do? In your ministry? In your home? What is your next step? What is the next step that God is calling you to engage in and to do? God is able to give all that we need to accomplish all that he's asked. With your relationships with your parents, with your spouse? Is God calling you to forgive someone? Doesn't He actually give you the resources to do it? Isn't He called you uh, to be involved in His work? Isn't He called you to live for His glory? God is able to give all that you need to accomplish all that He's asked. Well, these guys, these apostles, they're learning this in the most dramatic fashion. And you always want to remember God's faithfulness. And so look at verse 17. And so they all ate and were satisfied. How about that? And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up 12 baskets full. I want you to know that it is biblical to have leftovers and to save them. There's the verse right there. Verse 17. See that? I know that's going to go on someone's fridge. I can just see it right now. Okay. You see what Jesus did? There was 12 baskets full of leftovers. Okay. And so... How many apostles do we have? Oh yeah, that's good. And how many baskets of food, of leftovers do we have? Twelve. You see, Jesus says, you know, I want to make sure that you never forget this. So each one of you got a basket. It's plumb, overflowing, full. And I want you to carry this around because I never want you to forget that I can give you all that you need to accomplish all that I've asked. And so they see this. It's really interesting. When the, this event is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 14... Do you know how long it took for the apostles to forget the message of the feeding of the 5,000? One chapter. In Matthew 15, they encounter a situation where there are 4,000 men, not counting women and children. And this time, they've got a few more pieces of bread and a few more fish. And they're like, whoa, Jesus, we're what are we going to do? With all these people, they're super hungry, and this is all we've got. They forgot. And so Jesus... Had to repeat the lesson. Friends, this is how we live. This is the nature of the Christian life. You just keep coming back to Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to him in prayer. And friends, this Jesus who can satisfy physical needs. It's meant to show us he can satisfy spiritual needs. Your need for forgiveness, your need for purpose, life, your need for peace, hope, your need for faith, He provides, He is the Savior, and that's what we learn from this message. You see, God is able to give all that I need to accomplish all that He's asked us. And you know what? Life is like this. Our lives reveal the depth of our understanding and application of the profound message, of the miracle, of the feeding of the five thousand, let's pray. Lord, your word is awesome. You have recorded this miracle in all of the gospels so that we will know who you are, the power of Jesus, and the nature of ministry. And for Lord, for someone who has come here today who has never trusted in Jesus, perhaps it's been these past few weeks you've really been working on their heart. And now they see Jesus for who he is. Would they just simply pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from my sin and myself. And I trust you today. I put my faith in Jesus. Lead me and guide me. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, Lord, would you give us a profound sense of your power? May we put no limitations on your grace and your abilities. And may we learn to keep coming back to you for in your hands and in your heart, we find all that we need to accomplish all that we have been asked to do. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that is a profound miracle. I hope that we never forget the message and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. On this Sunday, what we wanted to do is we wanted to take a Sunday just to celebrate and honor all the many volunteers that we have at Fellowship Bible Church. And so. Uh, if you have been in a situation where you have volunteered in a ministry in this church, whatever that might be, uh, first of all, we'd like to just ask, could you stand? Because we just would like to acknowledge you. So if you've volunteered for ministry and fellowship in some ministry capacity, could you stand? And I know there's over 200 of you, so could you, we want you to know how grateful we are for you. Awesome. All right, you can have a seat. We have a gift for you that uh, you'll find in the back. But we want to know how grateful we are. And just as your friend and as your pastor, Jesus is very much alive and doing his work through his people. And I am so grateful for your investment, your willingness to serve, sometimes behind the scenes, some in very public scenes. But you're like, Jesus first, just do your work for me. We want to thank you. And we've got a little video just to highlight just a few ways we see God at work thank you, thank you.